Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast this morning. And uh, today we've got an action-packed program. Uh, Well, I don't know. We don't want it to be too action-packed, do we? It's Saturday morning. It's not that cold outside, actually. It's quite nice. Winter's uh, sim is uh, calming down. We've uh, been uh, had uh, the cold. We've had the uh, rain. We haven't had hail and only snow in certain parts of the uh, state, but not quite in this suburb. Anyway, moving right along. Today, I'm going to share a conversation I had with uh, someone who is probably the premier political wit that Australia has had for a number of years, John Clark, who is a local identity, passed him in the street, got the chance to actually have a chat with him and I thought I'd share that chat with you and go through some of the uh, different phases of his comedy. That's first up. Uh, It's uh, in honour of the uh, ABC uh, releasing a box set of that superlative, uh, witty political uh, program, The Games, and since they've all started to talk about the games again, this is a great way of revisiting uh, the dark side of uh, the games. Anyway, John Clark, we're going to talk with John Clark, extended interview. Then we're going to move on to the update on the CUB dispute that we just heard about on uh, Stick Together. It's uh, ratcheted up. It's uh, going to another level where the, um, they're leaving the pickets and going down to the head office, which is 77 South Bank Boulevard. Each Thursday at 12, there's going to be a contingent of uh, unionists and workers, uh, unionist workers outside CUB. You're, you're completely welcome to go down and share. So we've got a bit of a recording with uh, Adam Bant showing support, the Greens' uh, parliamentarian and uh, others speaking at that event on last Thursday. Uh, After that we've got This Is The Week That Was and then we're going to catch up with Noah Purcell. And just a quick reminder of the event of the week. 3CR Show Real Fundraiser, Thursday the 28th of July. Fallout, stunning documentary by Lawrence Johnson, starring Gregory Peck, Ava Gardner, Neville Shoup and 1959 Melbourne during shooting of On the Beach with a side order of international fear of a nuclear holocaust. 
today every inhabitant of this planet must contemplate the day when this planet may no longer be habitable. Fallout, July the 28th, 7pm, upstairs at 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. $10. Keep 3CR Radical Radio on the air. Neville Shute bought the most appalling concept of all to a mainstream audience. For me, it was real. Just penetrated every bone of my body. So we'll start off with John Clark and... Uh, it's a it's an extended interview, but there's a few breaks with some bit of comedy, which is what you'd expect from, as I said, the uh, po- possibly the pinnacle political wit produced by Australia. He's a New Zealand export, as you'll hear. Well, let's go back to when you first came to Australia. I know that probably is going back into the dim, dark past for you, mm. but you come from New Zealand. You don't come from Australia. Um, well, if you say so. Um, <laughs> I came from New I mean, Zealand. I'm showing my racist heart, Australian no, racist yes, heart. Indeed, um, I came from New Zealand first in 1973, and I lived in Melbourne um, and worked in Melbourne, not in the entertainment field, but just in labouring jobs and stuff. Um, and then I went back to New Zealand, and I came here permanently in 1977 partly because I'd been doing a whole lot of work in New Zealand, which interested me a great deal, but I needed to sort of diversify what I was doing and broaden it somewhat. And I was beginning to get some approaches from Australia and I decided to come over and have a good look at them. And the persuasive ones actually turned out to be in radio. And I went into radio, ABC radio, where I provided these relatively short pieces which I would write and perform and I became aware that what I was effectively what I was doing was learning to write right and I'd previously been mainly just a performer I mean you make stuff up and you hold it in your head but if you actually take a pencil with you you're called a writer (laughs) that's exactly right Mm. but there's a big difference between writing and saying and you do delivery yeah there is a big difference and the the, the place where you give your work form and structure and rhythms and things like that is often in the writing. In the thing I do with Brian, for example, a lot of the rhythm is in the two-ness of the voices, in the in the dialogue. Um, at the time I was doing radio when I first got here, it was in a monologue, so it was, yeah, much more to do with the writing. Uh, yeah, g'day. Now, I suppose you've all seen, as I have, uh, reports in the tissues about the boom we're experiencing uh, in overseas investment. Now, this is a very complicated area, and I think it's probably as well uh, for us to have a little bit of a look at the causes uh, and methods involved before you find that your back garden's fetching a new high on the Hong Kong Commodities Index. Uh, And as the uh, International Finance Manager for Open Slather Limited, uh, I'm probably, I think, in as good a position as anyone uh, to explain the whole thing to you. Now, Open Slather is, in fact, a reasonable enough example of what's going on. We were involved initially, of course, uh, in the rubber business in the part underneath the thin bit in South America, and we then diversified into the sugar field in Africa and we reinvested the profits in various enterprising projects in Europe and Asia. Then, of course, England went into what I can only describe as a fairly steep decline, and we had to shift a good deal of capital into South Africa, where, as you know, the economic equation is particularly well served uh, by some pretty inexpensive labour. The problem there is, of course, uh, that it's now widely recognised that one of these days there's going to be a strike in South Africa, and when I say a strike, I mean to invoke the notion more of total war uh, rather than the slightly less catastrophic idea of picketing. 
Uh, and given the uncertainty that does mark the future in South Africa, uh, we began looking about for another pillow to put the tooth under. Uh, and what we were looking for, basically, was a place that was crawling with natural resources, which we could process, because, of course, the people who process natural resources uh, do tend uh, to make slightly more money out of it than the people who stand out in the sun all day with hats on, harvesting the stuff and putting it under the trees in boxes. Uh, we wanted a country with stable government, and we have every expectation of Malcolm's continued stewardship. We wanted it away from the world's trouble spots, uh, somewhere where the public doesn't really care too much about what's going on, and where the legislation is written only with a very light pencil. And Australia's perfect, really. Most of the people live in the bottom right-hand corner and we're left with a place the size of Western Europe to charge about with with a front-end loader and a big sack. Uh, you get out of my way now. I'll see you later. The Fred Daggs character that you mm. created, uh, what were you do- doing? Who, who was that? Well, the, that was a character I'd done in New Zealand for some years before I came here. But when I came here, I made it more or less radio only because I wanted the emphasis to be on the writing. Um, and I was just being the sorts of people that I'd seen a lot of in New Zealand and here who were sort of a bit smart enough to do to process things, but they often didn't have enough info um, and didn't know quite where to get it. So they were sort of lurching around a little bit in terms of their ideas. And so if their idea didn't work, the idea they were trying to persuade you didn't work. They were often unaware of it. You were aware of it, but they weren't always aware of it, and there was a bit of irony there, and I thought that was pretty good fun. Sarcasm, <coughs> irony, wrangling, mm. which is what you do in a sense. Mm. Yes, well, I think um, what appeals to me is the is the business of, let's say, an argument, um, which it pretends to be logical. If it isn't logical, I think it's sometimes easier rather than to say, here's the argument and here's the logical fault with it, it's sometimes more effective to say the argument as if there isn't a fault in it, but make the fault so obvious that the audience sees it. Because the joy of the discovery in the audience, I'm in the audience, I know the feeling, if you notice something, and the person performing is pretending he's not aware of it. It's your discovery, not him ramming something down your throat. And that's hysterical. Kids absolutely <clears throat> delight in that mm. sequence, but you, adults do too. Yeah, and I, when I was a kid, I grew up loving comedy and being aware that the comedy, sort of comedy I loved most often not only didn't acknowledge how it was working, but pretended it wasn't. That's exactly right, and it's fantastic. It's mm. absolutely fantastic. Is there a huge difference between uh, New Zealand comedy and Australian comedy? If Fred Dagg was from New Zealand mm. and came here, uh, mm. uh, was there a big difference between those two audiences? I didn't think so, and I don't think there is historically. Um, no, and I think there's a similar, uh, a similar interest in the language, a similar sort of, uh, you know, colonial language history, if you like. Um, and appreciation of power, class and yeah, power. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. So, no, I don't think the perspective is terribly different and I don't think the language is terribly different and I don't think the sorts of entertainment options have ever been terribly different. I know that listening back to those Fred Dagg uh, story, uh, mm-hmm. pieces that um, I get a bit freaked out by the fact that the storylines that you're 
building around haven't changed a lot. No, that's right. Mind you, I'm probably... Um, I'm quite interested in the relationship between the specific and the general because I think, in a sense, they live inside each other. Um, and sometimes it's in the general that you see the specific and sometimes a very specific observation will remind everybody else of something they know, which is the same general point. Mm. And it doesn't actually make it generally true. Uh, so, I mean, just mm. interestingly enough, lately I've been reading books around very specific year, year, years, uh, thir- 1938, mm. 1940, mm. uh, and uh, in Europe. Mm. And, of course, we all know what happened at that time in Europe. Mm. But there are a whole lot of different characters at different times, but uh, different places within that whole European madness that happened. Mm. But sometimes you sort of think, actually, a whole lot of the things that are happening then are happening now. Mm. And that's a bit frightening. Do you see parallels like that? Well, it or is. it's not necessarily true. It's just the way it feels? Yes, it, it is. And and actually, it's not a long time ago. And I mean, in my life, it's not a long time ago because my parents were both involved in the Second World War. They met in Italy during the Second World War. I'm a child of it. Um, and growing up, we were aware of the fact that that had really just happened. Um, and... There were other then there were other sort of threats to world peace, and um, then wars eventually became kind of regional franchises almost. Um, but um, that uh, Second World War period and the very big ideas that were in play there, um, and they were interestingly dealt with by a particularly brilliant New Zealand cartoonist called David Lowe. And I had a very good look at what he was doing at that time, and he was pretty brilliant. He was a very big mainstream cartoonist in the British press, um, and he was a Presbyterian socialist from Dunedin, and he was completely unwavering in his view of the broad politic of the particular behaviour of the people. His cartoon, for example, when the Nazi-Soviet pact um, was agreed to is just a fantastic cartoon. It completely uh, obliterates any moral pretense of either of the parties. It's superb. And I, when I was a kid, I grew up with him ringing in my ears thinking, this is so intelligent and so beautifully done, and it's using their own words to skewer themselves. He's not pointing any fingers. He's just saying, this is what he said and this is what he said. They're both liars. Lots of people seem to overlook the fact that journalists, they go, they carry on about journalists, but actually it's the editors and then the owners that they mm. should be worrying about. And that when they look into what journalists do, that there's an awful lot of self-censorship that journalists indulge in. Do you self-censor in that way? Um, Would you think? I don't know. I might be flattering myself, but I'm certainly not aware of any actual process in me that is self-censoring. I think one of the great things about writing um, and about talking, in fact, is that you sometimes do it not because you know what you think, but in order to find out what you, you think. You think, yes, that's right. Mm, that's so it's, in a sense it's adventurous and, and a bit cavalier and you can edit something that you don't think you should be thinking out 
if you want to. But I think if you not, I think if you've got a governor on your engine, you're not going to go very fast. And part of this is to do with velocity. You need to, in this line of work, you need to get a result and get it quickly. You need to be cost effective. I can't go in there and occupy a studio for three hours producing, you know, three minutes. I need to know exactly what I'm doing. And um, in the process of writing and in the process of rehearsing, we will try everything. Um, and editing is not always sen- self-censorship. Editing is a very creative part of any writing and any performing and any production exercise. How do you go about it? Um, what, the whole thing or the editing? No, the whole thing. Well, the whole thing. Um, in the morning, I write... Um, uh, one or two or three or more sometimes scripts on slightly different subjects with slightly different interviewees or slightly different angles because I'm not quite sure which is going to be work better. I'm not quite sure which issue is going to be the most pertinent by later that evening or whatever. And then we'll go into the studio. I'll meet Brian. We'll rehearse um, <clears throat> and we'll often shoot one or two or three of them, and I won't know until editing which one I think works best. Um, I'll sit there with an excellent editor, and um, it, if it's too long, we need to trim it down. As normal editing questions start cropping up, um, and while we're dealing with those, I'm looking at it and thinking about the quality, and it's sometimes a second chance to write it, in a sense. I sometimes think, oh, you know, you're not quite sure sometimes whether some repetition will get in the way or make it work better. If it gets in the way, I need to take it out. If it, mm. if it would work better, I'm trying to put more in it. Have we got more of that? Mm. Um, if it needs uh, the, if it, you know, who's the, who should the shot be on during that? Are we better? Are we better interesting? Are we more interested in what I'm saying or how Brian's listening to it? Are we more interested in what Brian's question is or my? Um, sort of uh, the way I am listening to it I'm not listening to it seriously because it's about asylum seekers and I've got a prepared answer I'm not really answering the question at all etc so all of those which largely to do with tone often the nature of the discussion in terms of the anthropology the human people dealing with it because we're always dealing with people and people are fascinating like you said anthropology that's what you're actually interested in yeah I'm interested in the people you're interested in the people. Mm. And do, do you get any uh, a flyback? Uh, I, I love the audacity of saying you're someone yeah. when you're com- obviously not. Yeah. It's very Shakespearean, that. It is. It's fantastic. Well, um, it's a bit of a mockery of democracy, too, because the idea is in a democracy that you are elect- the people are in charge. Well, ha, ha, ha. Uh, the, you know, there's a sense in which the people are being manipulated. Um because that equation can work either way. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I, the whole the whole business of pre- saying you're pretending to be someone you're obviously not pretending to be is pretty delicious. It's pretty funny. Mm. And do you get any flyback that, from that? No, I know, well, most of the time if I meet anybody who's actually in <clears throat> genuine politics or in um, you know public prominence of the kind of person who might be our subject matter, I normally only meet people like that if they're in the TV studio kind of getting made up to do late line or something like that. So I have these slightly disquieting conversations with people in a mirror in the makeup room where we're talking to one another's reflection, which is also pretty funny. And most of them are courteous and perfectly intelligent and rather nice. I think the people who don't like me 
of whom there'll be plenty, um, wouldn't much bother with me. Um, but I, I've, I haven't run into terribly many of them. And, um, and uh, I'm not much in Canberra and Sydney, and a lot of this country comes out of there. That's exactly right, which is quite an interesting uh, observation that you make. You don't actually have to look at them up close, do you? No. Yeah. And as someone said that... Uh, I have avoided a few of them, mind you. I've seen them across a crowded cafeteria and made sure I went the other way because I don't want to meet them. Yeah, that's right. But also often it's uh, satire is often outdone by reality. It is. That's a bit scary. It is a bit scary, but <clears throat> this is why we need to encourage a satirical eye in the public so that if they <clears throat> so that they are you know confident enough to recognize that if they think something is satirical and it's the real world, they have the right to say there's something the matter with this. Uh, it needs to be fixed. I'm not fooled. Yeah, well, I'm not sure how much effect we have on people, which is why I wouldn't want to make too great a claim for the work we do. It interests me a great deal as a kind of creative process. Um, and But I am very impressed with the fact that, that the audience is now so good at looking at, at television, for example, that you don't need to say the joke. You can get right up to the joke and just not take the next step and they'll make the joke in their own head. In um, fact, they find it a delicious. Yeah, and that's a fantastic thing. People have been watching television for 50 years. I remember when I was a kid and television was just coming in, a lot of comedy was very, very obvious because it was needing to shout its way out of a very small box in the corner of a living room. Now... People are so good at watching television that they can even watch it on a phone and the slightest thing you do is seen and noticed and if it has any significance, it's picked up immediately. That's not interesting. Maybe uh, hunting, hunting and gathering will take on a new meaning when we go into the climatic mm. disaster. Well, it sometimes works um, by kind of, I suppose, what an artist would call negative space too because I remember... When we first did the interviews on television, we did them first on radio, but when we first did them on television, it was at Channel 9. And I um, was, for the first few weeks, when we were sitting in the studio, the Channel 9 lawyer was was standing next to us. And he was a very nice fellow. And I said to him one day, why are you here each week when we record? And he said, well, we're a very wealthy organisation, John. We don't want to get sued. There's a lot of defamation in this country and we just need to be a little bit careful. And I said, well, it's not my principal intention to get sued. Why don't you explain the rules to me and you can, you know... Go away. You can you can go and do some lawyering. And um, he said, well, that's a good idea. The main thing that you need to avoid doing is calling someone a liar. That's the one thing you must never, ever do. Don't call anyone a liar. And I said... Would it be possible for Brian to say to me, are you telling me the complete truth? And for me to say, can you repeat the question, please? And he said, yeah, you're not calling anyone. I said, thanks very much. It's a much better comic idea. And I was very, I remember that moment distinctly because I remember realising that the negative space you can create by not saying the thing is often much more engaging, in a sense, and truer than if you're simply making the claim, which is an arguable claim. But it's obvious that somebody's trying to avoid telling the truth. There must be a reason for that, and that's not good. Thanks for your time. Very good to be with you. Good evening.
Which bank are you with again? That's correct, Brian. I've been with them for quite a while. Can answer any of your questions on that score? Yeah, now you've put rates up again, haven't you? Well, Brian, we don't have a lot of choice, do we? Why not? Well, there are only three things you can do with rates. You can put them up. You can put them down. Just a minute, Brian. Hadn't finished. Hadn't finished. Bear with me. Only three things you can do with rates, Brian. You can put them up, you can leave them where they are. Or you can put them down. I'm going to persist with this, Brian, until I get this out. There are three things you can do you with should, rates. You, you can put them up, you can leave them where they are, yeah. or you can delay making a decision until you think that the overall financial atmosphere is more conducive to perhaps easing them in a non-downward direction over time. That's three options. It is, but you mm. can eliminate two of them reasonably briskly. You're not going to put them down, are you? Well, why not? Brian, are you familiar with the way bank executives are paid, the system of bonuses and options and so on? No, not really. No, well, I think perhaps we'll talk about this when you're old enough to understand. There's also been criticism of the banks this week, though, hasn't there? No, not that I'm aware of, no. Well, the government and the opposition have uh, expressed misgivings about uh, monetary policy. Oh, I see. Criticism from outside the buildings. Yes. Criticism of banks from outside yes. the banking yes. industry. Oh, look, it's entirely possible. It's a jungle out there. I mean, we can't control everything. But is, isn't there a debt crisis in this country? A debt crisis? What's a debt crisis? Well, right? people owe too much money. <laughs> people owe too... Hang on. People owe too much... That's very good, Brian. People but, but owe... Don't people owe too... so much that they can never pay it back? You don't have to pay it back, Brian. You what have... are you, what well, are you people, about? When people borrow money, they need to service the loan. You yes. need to service debt. You don't need to repay it or you haven't got a loan at all. What are they buying? Oh, they buy houses and stuff to put in the houses and cars to park outside the front of the houses. And what does any of that produce? Well, interest. I mean, that's how we no, make no, a living. No. I mean, we lend them the money, they service that debt, and that's how we make but, money. But that's not the best use of the country's capital resources, Well, try is it? telling them that. We don't tell them what to want, Brian. We just lend them the money to do it. There's also been a, a good deal of talk about competition amongst the banks. Well, it's said there isn't enough competition. You were saying there is competition. Well, there, there is competition the among the banks, yes. There are quite you, a lot of us. Well, you, there's four big banks. Four. Four. Four of us. Just excuse me. Hello. Yes, I'm doing it now. I'm just talking to him now. Are you watching? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'll tell it. Yes, it's just cropped up. I'll tell him. Excuse Thank me. you. Who's that? He runs one of the other banks. He agrees, Brian. What? That there's strong competition? Yep. They all agree. They're all around at his place. Fierce competition. Fierce he competition. Said. Fierce. Cutthroat competition among the banks. Thanks for your time. Oh, that's my pleasure, Brian. I, um, whoops. Now, excuse me. Can someone turn the lights on? I can't find my way out of here. Oh. With the uh, series, the games, do you feel that, I mean, there's a big difference in a sense to doing short mm. uh, interview style things that you've created with mm. Brian? Uh, how did that? How did that happen? I mean, it's a big, it's a very clever production. In fact, well, that happened because of <clears throat> my very, very clever friend Ross Stevenson. Um, with whom I wrote a couple of stage plays, which were his idea. What were the stage plays? They were royal commissions into... Uh, one was a royal commission into the Australian economy, one was a royal commission into corruption in Victoria. Um, and oh, we, how hilarious. We did them in association with early comedy festivals and we enjoyed doing it so much that we thought, uh, let's do a, a comedy series for television in which... There are some people engaging in human organisation and the follies and so on. And um, we'll set it in an office and we'll base it around a real event which has a known date. So the program can't go past that date and simply builds towards that date. And we picked the Olympics because we both thought that's going to be absolutely huge. And we wrote this thing as a kind of office comedy which was about the relationships and the catastrophes and whether 
whether kind of deferral is a victory in a case of a you know we better not have this happen we might not be able to prevent it but we can prevent it happening today or something and um we cast it with very very good performers gina riley is a fantastic dramatic performer as well as a wonderful comic um <clears throat> Brian and I had known each other's speech rhythms for quite a while. Nicholas Bell is a very, very brilliant, highly trained classical actor and a gifted comic. I mean, it was just a dream. And all the other actors in it, I think, with the two exceptions, were very, very good Melbourne actors. Mm, yeah, there's lots of good actors. Mm, and they Terrific. Would, and they'd love it when they get a chance to actually do some proper acting. Yeah, it was just the best fun. Did, was there a lot of improvising? I mean, I know you, you would have written a lot of stuff, but it, did people contribute on that level? They did, but it was a carefully written program. Yeah, And it was. we wrote it slightly longer than we needed it so we could cut the, alter the pace slightly in the editing. Now and again we needed some scenes to be faster than others and we had no audience, so we, didn't, we weren't leaving any gaps for amusement. We wanted people to smile rather yeah. than laugh and miss the next bit. So, so are, we, are you a musician? No, but, I, you know, but there's still pacing, time. Yeah, yeah, it's <clears> this pacing business that's captivating, really. Well, it, it is. I love the rhythm in language, and I think a lot of... I mean, Brian and I will sometimes do an interview uh, and we'll record it twice, and one of them's notably more amusing than the other, and the words are the same, and it's the rhythm. Yeah, that's right. And I, I was, I was going to say that um, by choosing a real event like that, and the way you do it with Brian, choosing real time, well, see, that's the thing, you see, time and space, mm. terribly important. Mm. Uh, people feel that you're being really daring, that you, they're putting, mm. you're almost standing in front of a train. Mm. It's, the suspense of it is almost terrible. Yes, that's right. Well, the other thing is that it seems to me that, that people are very amusing. There's a strong satirical instinct in the community I think people in the workplace are often very amusing with one another and a lot of it is talk, it's not physical comedy, it's verbal and a lot of it is to do with either rhythm in the language, rhythm in the sentence or rhythm in the idea or rhythm in the habit that's being mocked or whatever, you know, the the thing that's happening. Um, and so I think that, uh, and that's always appealed to me in every job I ever had, there were always people who were amusing and I think... Part of it's that. But, of course, if you get that to happen, and it's rather amusing, you can stiffen up the subject matter and the judgments that the program contains to the point of sharpening a knife. <laughs> Which you did Which in the games. Which is very good fun, yeah. That's right. Because, the, you know, the games, like any other, you know, mega undertaking, is a multi, multi, multi-million dollar thing, and you'll have the same problems each time, the same people will turn up, the same bureaucracies will contain often the same people. Uh, if it's in... Well, if it's in Australia, they will. There's only... Yeah. I mean, I've got this theory, you know, you can only have, you know, 10 uh, talking heads. You can only have... Te uh, mm. You know what I mean? There's, yeah. a, there's a specific amount of people that are allowed to be famous in Australia at yeah, any one time. Yeah, that's right. Well, in the case of the Games, um, <clears throat> it was a wonderful privilege to write it with Ross because he has he thinks... Um, He's got an ability to think structurally as well as being very funny so that um, if something happened in reality, he was very good at intuiting what must have happened beforehand and yeah. what was quite likely going to happen next, whereas I would often be concentrating on the possibilities that are 
exist in this particular moment. Ah, so very I've, useful. So we were a very good combination, and it was just a sheer pleasure, that project. Yeah, I picture it was. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I think I've exhausted you. Oh, well, I feel unexhausted, but thank you for your kind thought. Thank <laughs> you. Now, Mr Wilson, we've got a problem, haven't we? No problem, mate. That is not good. No, this is not good at all, Mr Wilson. What sort of a problem? Well, I'm right, aren't I, in assuming that you put that athletics track in? Yes, that's right. Yeah, now, did you do this to specifications, Mr Wilson? Yes. Are they the specifications there, Mr Wilson? Yes, that's them. Good. Now, Mr Wilson, have you measured the 100 metres track? Yes, of course. Well, let me ask you, how long is it? How long is the 100 metres track? Yes. It's a 100 metres track. Yeah, I know what it is, Mr Wilson. I'm asking you how long it is. It's about 100 metres. It's about 100 metres long. Yes. How long should it be, Mr Wilson? That's about the length it should be. Yeah, about 100 metres long. Mm -hmm. Is the 200 metres track about 200 metres long? Well, the 200 metres track is different. Isn't it twice as long as the 100 metres? Well, the 200 is different. So, no, 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 you've lost us, Mr. Wilson. Well, the 200 metres track is part of the 400 metres track. Well, how long is the 400 metres track, Mr. Wilson? Well, the 400 metres starts round here in the back straight, finishes up here at the finish line. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's a true. staggered no, no, start. No, no. No, familiar with the event itself, Mr. Wilson. What I'm trying to ascertain is are you absolutely sure that the 200 metres track is 200 metres long? Yes, that's right. Yeah, because it's half the 400 metres track, which is 400 metres long. That's right, the 200 metres is half the 400 metres. You can measure it. Yeah, no, 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 no. But the 400 metres track is exactly 400 metres long, is it? That's right. So the 200 metres track is exactly 200 metres long? Yes, of course. But what you're telling me is that the 100 metres track is about 100 metres long. Slightly different arrangement to the 100 metres track. Is a metre a slightly different concept, is it, in 100 metres as against 200? Well, I don't understand, Mr Wilson, quite why in the construction of a 100 metres track you would want to depart too radically from the constraints laid down for us by the conventional calibration of distance. Well, the 100 metres track is not part of the 400 metres track. It starts way out there. Mr Wilson, it doesn't matter whether it's horizontal or vertical. 100 metres is 100 metres. No two 100 metres tracks are ever the same. Everybody knows that. Well, how long is our 100 metres track? Look, what's the point? The point, Mr Wilson, is that in 739 days we're going to have the Olympic 100 metres final on that track. This is an event that'll be watched by about 600 million of the world's most dedicated rugged individualists. You and I both know it's going to be run on a track that's not 100 metres long. How do you know that? Mr Wilson, do you know who is the current 100 metres all-comers Australian record holder? No. Can I guess? Oh, there's not much point in guessing, Mr Wilson. Is he an African-American? He's not no, an African-American, no. no. Is he that Canadian from Jamaica? No, no he's, he's not, not a Canadian, Canadian from Jamaica, no. No. I give up. The uh, 100 metre record in this country, Mr Wilson, is currently held by Brian. Brian? Yes. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. And you, Mark, Mr Wilson, set at a blistering session last Wednesday. I wish you'd been there. We were down there and we had a bet. Is this wind assisted? No, and we'd had a couple. And in my view, Brian's not in quite the nick he was at the same stage of last season. So you've measured the track? Yeah, we've measured the track, Mr Wilson. So you know how long the 100 metres track is? Yes, <laughs> we do. OK. How long is it, Mr Wilson? You know how long it is? I want to hear you, you say, say it. 94 metres. 94 metres. 94 metres.
Well, we've got a new event, haven't we, Mr Wilson? The 94 metres. In fact, we've got two new events, haven't we? The 94 metres for men and the 94 metres for women. Hang on, would that replace the 100 metres or is this a new event? Because there'd be a cost element here, wouldn't there? That'd be in place at the 100 metres. Why is that? You don't have a 100 metres event. You haven't got a 100 metres track. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. Now, down at uh, CUB headquarters, that's 77 South Bank Boulevard on Thursday... Uh, that was the one just gone, the 14th, uh, there was a rally outside the steps of that building uh, by the CUB workers that were laid off, the 54. It's crept up to 55. I have to ascertain if there's an actual individual, another person. But originally it was 54 skilled workers, fitters and turners and ETU members, electricians, were hauled in and said, uh, you're fired and you're allowed to get your job back, reapply for your job, uh, for 65% less uh, than you're being paid now. Now, this is a a line in the sand issue. It's uh, quite clear that this is the beginning of uh, railroading the entire Australian workforce into a downward position. Now, uh, we recorded the uh, event and uh, we've opened up with Adam Bank, the Green member for Melbourne, who needs no introduction really, Uh, and uh, he's got a few interesting things to say. The MC is actually the Victorian Secretary of the ETU, which uh, that's... uh, Tony, uh, sorry, Troy Gray, and uh, and uh, there's also a worker that he, who gives his point of view. So let's hear from uh, that particular event, the CUB event uh, picket moving to the steps of the headquarters on 77 uh, South Bank Boulevard. They'll be there again on Thursday at noon uh, next week, so you can turn up and support them. They might be out of a job simply because the law lets them. That is the gap that is growing and it is putting people under pressure. And increasingly, around the country, people are standing up and say, saying enough is enough. If I do my job well, and if I help my boss make a profit, then I should be entitled to a secure job. And no one should be able to turf me out and put me out on the street just to make a bit more money. That is not the kind of country that we want. And so... I am here to let you know on behalf of the Greens and I suspect many, many others up in Canberra that you have our full support and that this is something that we will stand stand by you and we will fight with you over the coming months, however long this takes, because we know what is at stake here. What is at stake here isn't just your job and we know how much pressure that you must be under and what it means for you and what it means for your families and why you're having to explain to your kids that you're not going to work in the same way that you you did before. We know all of that, but we want you to know that you have many of us in Canberra, but hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people around the country standing side by side with you on this. Because we know that what is at stake here is the right of everyone to have a decent job 
and a decent wage, and if large multinationals are able to get away with this on this government's watch, then it's not going to stop at Abbotsford. It's going to have to happen everywhere else. It's going to happen everywhere else. We know that, and so we want to let you know that however long this takes, know that you've got support from people who want Australia to be not only a wealthy and prosperous country, but one where we start closing that gap between the billionaires and everyone else, and where everyone knows that they can go home at the end of the day safe and secure in the knowledge that if they keep doing their job right, they'll have a good and decent wage, and that Australia is going to survive in the 21st century, not by cutting wages to China and India level, but by being a smart country. And you can't have manufacturing in this country, and you can't talk about high-tech manufacturing unless we've got general manufacturing. And if we let the general manufacturing base in this country die, just because large multinationals want to water down the beer and make more profit, then we are all in trouble. So there's a lot at stake, and we are right with you. Please, please, I know it's going to be tough, but keep it up and know that you have got millions of Australians standing side by side with you. Good on you. Good on you, Adam. He's, uh, Adam's a rare commodity in Australia at the moment. He's an honest politician, uh, and he does a good job. That was a good speech. Look, I like it, Chris Paul. He just come up with a mic, comrade. This is one of the ETU members. Uh, mate, this, how's the dispute affecting you? How long have you worked at CUB for, mate? Are you a family man? Uh, how have you been paying bills for the last five weeks? What's the effect that it's had on you? Mate, have a chat. Well, uh, I've worked at CUB for seven years, and uh, in that time I've uh, trained myself up in my own time, my own money. I've spent seven years of schooling to get to where I am. And uh, I'm a father of a 14-week-year-old boy. 14-week-year-old boy. 14-week-old boy. And uh, my wife's currently home looking after him. Uh, currently have no income, but except for the support from the union, which has been greatly appreciated by all of us here. Uh, this company has sacked us not due to our lack of skills, not due to the lack of our hard work, not due to the lack of us achieving our KPIs. This company has sacked us due to their own corporate greed. The brewery... This brewery makes at the Abbotsford site about $1 million a day profit. A brewery that has the largest portfolio on the SAB Miller portfolio worldwide. This company has based our labour costs against their breweries in Colombia, a third world country where the workers have minimal conditions and extremely poor pay. We are just as integral to this company as the marketing and sales teams in this building behind us. CUB has cut our pay rates and conditions by 65%. Are they going to cut all the staff and management in this building behind us pays by that amount? Without this experienced maintenance team that stand before us, the viability of the Abbotsford site and many hundreds of blue-collar and white-collar jobs are truly at risk. We all deserve the same dignity and respect as the staff and management in this building behind us. Thank you. Yeah. All right. well, would you think that's the face of this dispute?
This is the face of the act of corporate bastardry for CUB. Let's get around them. Let's make sure they get some finances. There's buckets going around today. If you haven't chipped into the levy, put the money in the buckets and we'll make sure his 14-week-old boy gets some food on the table tonight. Would you thank Chris Paul? Thank you. Oh, well, look, uh, there's a number of unions that have come out in support today. We've got Joe, the State Secretary, Joe Wegg from the MUA. Uh, a number of speakers wanted to speak. If you're about Joe, if I can see you. There he is, Joe. Would you please welcome the Victorian Secretary of the MUA, Joe Italian. What's the, how do you pronounce the last one? On you. Joe, thank you. Good on you, Troy. Thanks, mate. On behalf of our members, our, our uh, my officials and the members, whether they're uh, seaside at sea on one of our ships or on one of our wharfs, we stand in absolute solidarity and unity with our good friends and our comrades at both the ETU and the AMWU and indeed the wider union movement. An absolute disgrace. CUB, Sab Miller or whatever you're calling yourselves, an absolute disgrace and what you've done to, uh, to working Australians. And I tell you what, I don't want to steal anybody else's thunder, so I won't go on for too long. But let me say this. To those of you that are working up here in these offices, watch your back. Because those bosses, whatever they've done to our workers, our workers and our comrades, there at the brewery, watch your backs. Come out from behind your desks. Stand up. Especially you, Jennifer Howard, if you're listening. Make sure that you tell your bosses to get stuffed. Because we're not going to continue to cop this. This is reminiscent of what happened to us at the Patrick's dispute back in 98. And I'll tell you what, with unity back there, we won that dispute. And we're certainly going to win this one now. I thank you very much for your time. Good on you. Touch one, touch all. The workers united will never be defeated. Oh, well, if we might wind it up there, I just want to give another a bit more of an update, all right? There's about a dozen workers that have come in to take the, supposedly to take the jobs of these 55. Uh, for the last four weeks, they were flown in from WA. CUB said, we'll have this dispute one in four weeks, right? Those lot have gone back. People call them scab, call them what you want, right? There is a new bunch coming in, uh, and they're coming in Monday. The current bunch getting paid 85 bucks an hour to sit around a smoko table and play cards. Because the untold story about CUV, they require some of the highest skilled maintenance workers in the country to keep that place going. And these so-called workers, call them scabs or whatever, these dirty dozen that are in there now, I ask you to have a look at yourself. I ask you to have a look at these SAC 55 workers. When you get up in the morning, look yourself in the mirror and have a look and say, look, how do you take the livelihood and the living standards from these 55 CUB workers? I urge you not to go in there and not to take the jobs of these 55 workers that are out there, even though you can't keep the place running. Well, I just want to end on, get used to it, because we're coming back here every Thursday and we're going to have a big one down at the picket line and then eventually we'll do it in the thousands at Spring Street. So it's going to get bigger and the support is going to get stronger, so get used to it. PCR Showreel Fundraiser, Thursday the 28th of July. Fallout, stunning documentary by Lawrence Johnson, starring Gregory Peck, Ava Gardner, Neville Shute, and 1959 Melbourne.
during shooting of On the Beach with a side order of international fear of a nuclear holocaust. Today, every inhabitant of this planet must contemplate the day when this planet may no longer be habitable. Fallout, July the 28th, 7pm, upstairs at 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. $10. Keep 3CR Radical Radio on the air. Neville Shute bought the most appalling concept of all to a mainstream audience. For me, it was real. Just penetrated every bone of my body. You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And before we get on to Kevin's wrap-up of the week, this is the week that was, there's a couple of things that are going on today, Saturday the 16th, uh, at... uh, 1 to 5 at the corner of Stanley Street and uh, Smith Street, Collingwood, part of the, uh, oh, what's it called? It's It's been Leaps and Bounds. It's this fabulous festival that's been going on around Yarra, uh, through Yarra Council, Leaps and Bounds, that supports local musicians. Uh, there's going to be a street party down at uh, the corner of uh, Stanley Street and Smith Street in Collingwood today, it's 1 to 5. Uh, it's uh, going to be um, highlighting Indigenous uh, community uh uh, singers, comedians and uh, dancers. Uh, it's going to be emceed by Lee Hood, a very well-known comedian, uh, with uh, Stray Blacks, uh, the uh, Indigenous Hip-Hop Project, uh, the Lady Lash, uh, the Jinder Warabak uh, Dance Group. Uh, also at one o'clock... Um, put together by the it's a First Nations Refugee Solidarity event at uh, one o'clock at Parliament House Steps. There's going to be speakers, uh, so you could go there first and then go to the music second. Um, Abdullah Bag, uh, Eugenia uh, Flynn, Ronnie uh, Kaniri, um, Marika Onus, Gary Foley, Rob. Thorpe and Viv Marlow are going to be speakers. As I said, it's a First Nation Refugee Solidarity event. Uh, Okay, let's move on because uh, we've got uh, the wonderful uh, wrap-up of the week to uh, burn our ears off. Perfect timing. A week solidarity, Becky Team Mister. When, as the bulldust settled and a dishevelled, caring business class Supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull staggered over the line, spare a thought for the selfless exponents of the greatest little economic order of them all, struggling to achieve the important reforms they know this country needs to make life better for all of us, including the all of us who didn't give their party the mandate it needed for those reforms. Critical good for all of us reforms like smash evil unions so we can have flexibility and certainty in the workplace. Remove all taxes on the rich and great corporate citizens to save them wasting time avoiding them. Time better utilised generating wealth for all of us. Increase handouts from those who cannot avoid tax so the selfless exponents can continue to do what's best for those who can't avoid paying tax, that sort of thing. Like infrastructure and any public asset that turns over a neat little profit which must clearly be the business of the caring business class. Who have ceded the blame for the poor showing of their caring business class party and the attraction of loony alternatives to a false perception. Jeff All and then some co-founder of the Business Profits Company 
Council bemoaned that caring employers were once seen as nation-building and heroic. Must say I'm trying to think of the last time I had that impression. Anyway, thanks to community activism, obviously a very, very bad thing, the general public started to see big business as the enemy. Business negatively stereotyped as destroying the forests and ripping off the public profit-seeking. Who but the most naive would think that? And one of our favourites, industry profits group Big Supremo Innes for what it's worth, Willocks, complained, business does not want to be painted as self-interested. Well, Innes, for what it's worth, you mightn't want to be, but for what it's worth, sorry to tell you it's hard to see a way around it. They, they sort of go hand in hand. Speaking as their acolyte, the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review's Alan Mitch held to workers, told us, we the voters, well, you the voters, because he didn't count himself or those he was serving, had shot themselves in the foot, had stupidly elected a result that would make these important reforms more difficult to achieve, and that would hurt all of us. Stupid, stupid, stupid. What a pity the electorate can't think, throwing the odd spanner into the plutocrat machine. Yet somehow I feel the plutocrats and oligarchs will straighten it out. Another concerned citizen, caring business class brackets temporary MP Corey St. Bernardi, with a name like that, any wonder he's so concerned that marriage equality will lead to bestiality, Corey blamed that extreme long-haired commie greedy Malcolm for the caring business class party's losses. Argued with his usual insight, the caring business class party needed to bolster its support base by agreeing with him, Corey, not that mad commie, no, not that mad commie Malcolm, by heading right and not stopping, establishing a body somewhere out there similar to Get Up, Corey idea of an international commie conspiracy against everything the decent Christian world stands for, or for which, but you know what he means. Many of the caring business class victims and near victims displayed such graciousness and acceptance they made Malcolm's post-election sometime in the wee small hours Sunday speech look all reason, self-awareness and beneficence. Ex-train killer Andrew Nickoff lick off lick my down in Tasmania for instance this is what dishonesty looks like get up spent 500,000 and imported 90 activists into bass it's sad to think that this kind of dishonest campaigning approach works in this country well said Andrew and it means you might have to go and get a job but spending money and using people in an election unheard of how dishonest an ex Sorry, Copper, which probably explains his giant mind, the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, who scraped in, blamed bikies, union thugs, activists and sneaky socialist tactics for his plummeting popularity. Obviously nothing to do with cruelty, inhumanity and weasel words, although why insult weasels, but haven't they taken it well? Some commentators are speculating Duffer is first in line for a promotion. What's that say about the rest of them? The Coalition of the Killing, with Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, then big supremo tiny Blyer, doing whatever. US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo judge W. Bash the workers ordered, with true but it was his little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo back in the last dark ages, bouncing along clutching George W.'s coattails, continue to justify the killing, ignoring the inconvenient evidence. We quoted them last week, the little bald-headed bloke. 
I would do it again. I, I really would. Uh, there was no lie. That there were errors in intelligence, but there was no lie. That there, there really wasn't. And for once, we'd have to agree with him because we've always questioned his intelligence. And the little bald-headed bloke, the Man of Steel, also said the problem lay not with his bestie George W. nor Tiny, even though Tiny was a socialist, and obviously Tiny and the little bald-headed bloke would have had cosmic ideological differences, but with that commie sympathiser Barack for Chains change, change, who failed to send in more and more trained killers until there were no Iraqis left. And that would have relieved a fair bit of the no proper papers, queue jumping, illegal boat people problem as well. It, it really would. With the impeccable timing of Burke and Wills, this Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, very well-spoken lawyer speaking from Washington this week, covering all bases, obviously, called for the Syrian government to be tried for war crimes. We'd think they'd let the dust settle just a little bit, wouldn't we? While on the little bald-headed bloke, he also gave his successors a bit of advice about that appalling Hoonsun. It would be stupid to isolate her and her supporters, it really would. Attacking her in her first parliamentary stint only made her stronger, it really did. Can't recall who did attack her, but he certainly didn't, he just pinched her policies. And as for making her stronger, maybe he's forgotten, but she lost her seat at the next election. On which, as Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, Big Supremo, evaporated into history, the new Big Supremo, Theresa Profits May, named that model of tact and diplomacy Boris Johnsonoff the new tact and diplomacy Supremo. And despite his odd diplomatic comment about the US of like, Hillary is like a sadistic nurse in a mental hospital, serving it up to Hillary, the US of, and psychiatric patients in one fell swoop, he talked to the US. US Arb Secretary of State, your loyalty, John Kerrying for the rich, with John saying Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country and the US Arb had a special relationship. We have a special relationship with all countries who do what we tell them to do. At this, the little bald-headed bloke puffed out his little chest. I am the uh, man of steel. I, I really am. On Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country and bald blokes, another bald bloke, well, chap, that prince, son of big ears, who's been producing a new batch of the highest paid doll bludgers, got down to Prince work and produced a video to support his dear old granny's home country stand up to bullying day. You common people must remember we are all born equal. He popped his hand out for his latest doll check. Middle East lover of liberty, freedom and democracy just asks the US of Saudi Arabia has vowed it will strike with an open hand against, wait for it, against religious extremists. Hang on, where did I say? Where was that again? Saudi. Upset over religious extremism. Might pop down Friday morning between a few public beheadings and see if we can get a comment. Getting in early to prepare for an election of his own, New South Wales big supremo Mike Bed of Roses, if you vote for me, took steps to convince voters his state was not going to the dogs.
while finally, down here in Lord, Ropi, Lord Rupert of Wapping's version of a socialist dystopia, we should all give thanks there was a period of light, of renaissance. Give thanks and, if we believe in the dear baby Jesus bit, say a prayer every night for former state big supremo Jeff Footinmouth and then economic guru Alan Stockdill after the announcement that our electricity prices are now the highest, not just in Troublewazzy, but in the whole world. What pride! We lead the world! If only utility prices could be an Olympic event. Indeed, it's worth lobbying for the 2020 Games, and imagine how high they'd be but for foot-in-mouth and stock deal, but for the efficiency of the private sector. Imagine how astronomical they'd be if our fossil power was still in the bloated, inefficient hand of the public sector, not benefiting us all through market forces on the great level playing field of world's best practice competition policy. And to think there were sceptics who questioned Jeff and Alan's promise that prices would get lower and lower once they flogged off this drain on the public purse. Eat humble pie, sceptics, if you can afford to cook it. Good morning. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to... Fill in the dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, fill in the... 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Can't play 
hope that's given you a sense of uh, the uh, happiness of the day. <laughs> now I'm having real difficulty getting you onto Noah. I don't know what the problem is, but uh, the phone rings, but nobody answers. So uh, we can either go to another song or we can uh, go to an interview I did with Hayden Keenan a long time ago, but it was about a very interesting subject, which was uh, his film about the... Uh, uh, opening up of the ASIO files after 30 years. And uh, he did a, a really interesting uh, set of films, uh, series, uh, focusing on a number of different uh, people who were being uh, followed actively by the by ASIO. And uh, one of them, of course, was uh, um, people like... Uh, uh, Gary Foley, who's going to be speaking today at one outside uh, Parliament House as part of a First Nations Refugee Solidarity event, if you wanted to go down there today. Uh, anyway, I thought we'd be quite interesting to revisit uh, Hayden Keaton. So here we go. Let's have a listen. It was, I can't think now, maybe five years ago, maybe six years ago, I was sitting in a Gary Foley's backyard and he showed me a, a, a dog-eared folder of oh, a couple of hundred pages and, and asked me to have a look at it and I, I took a look and it was it was a little bit hard to follow it was mainly, mainly bureaucratic uh, text and the occasional reference to Gary and the odd other person I knew and I said what is this and he said oh it's my ASIO file we sat and discussed the thing and that the, there was a uh, access could be made by the public through the National Archives of Australia to any ASIO files that have already been requested and are sitting on the shelf, or by making an application, you can ask for anyone else's file um, that's not on the shelf and that you think might have a file. So there's about 2,000 files on the shelf, and my guess is somewhere up to half a million files on Australian citizens dating from 1949 onwards. So unfortunately, ASIO do not allow access to um, an index. So you have to stab in the dark. I could ask for your file. And as long as I know the exact spelling of your name and your date of birth and your place of birth, ASIO will tell the National Archive within 90 days whether there is a file on you and if there is, they will deliver it with black texture through any sensitive material. And if it's really big, they will come back within 90 days and say, yes, there is a file, but it'll take four months for our censors to go through it. And then they will give it to the National Archive and it will sit on the shelf there and you can order a copy. So I'm thinking that when our series comes out, there will be a huge rush on the National Archive by all those who thought they were a threat to the state. So what were they trying to do? What sort of details did they have in these files? ASIO's charged with, in 1949, uh, was charged with catching and uh, gathering intelligence on subversives and spies. That's espionage and subversion. They used what was called a mosaic theory. Under the mosaic theory, nothing is irrelevant. So they collected everything, absolutely everything. And when they decided that you were, one, a person of interest, and two, a person of significant interest, 
they really go to town on you, depending if you were uh, worked at the Communist Party or uh, uh, another significant employer whose phone was tapped. All your phone calls would be recorded and either transcribed or synopsized. Many of your movements, all your travel, uh, all your relationships, uh, everything. It's, it's like reading a, an incredibly detailed dark biography of you written by someone who neither likes nor trusts you. There are two strands of files inside ASIO. There are personal files, which will be on Annie McLaughlin or uh, individuals throughout the, the state. There are another strand of files, which are subject files. And they're, they're fascinating too, but they are not limited to a single individual. So you will have women's liberation, land rights, the Aboriginal tent embassy. Interestingly enough, you will also have one called the Mother's Club at the Garden Vale Primary School. So uh, the subject areas, when you go through the list of subjects, again, it's, you can just apply for a subject. And when you look at the archives index of subjects, you find a fascinating insight into who the intelligence agencies believe were a potential threat. There's every university, actors' equity. It goes from the absurd to the, the, the plainly obvious, you know, the Communist Party of Australia. Because once you learn how to read them, there is a, a strange accuracy that comes through in them, although you have to take into account that they have a hypothesis already. And the flaw in their scientific methodology is that all evidence proves their hypothesis. So if you speak too much, you're lying. If you don't speak enough, you're hiding something. <laughs> and now tell me about the method of telling the story. It's a four-part series called Persons of Interest, four by one hours. We've basically done a, a, a chronological approach to the, the files and used the actual files and a series of uh, surveillance photos that we found of the, the person of interest and most excitingly, several hundred hours of surveillance movie film. And for a filmmaker, the, the being able to get the images is, is wonderful. So um, we've got movie film of, you know, Carlton and, and Paran and Caulfield Railway Station and the city. And it's a, it's a unique social record of life in Australia. So the, the access to the, the photographic background has, has been a real boon and it's a key to making these, these stories. Unfortunately, we were not able to get access to the recorded telephone conversations. ASIO claimed that they erased them all. And we have also used the file pages themselves and the way we've photographed them, I hope will give a sense of the vaguely claustrophobic bureaucracy that is ASIO. And that's one of the, the crucial things that you, you need to get into your head is that first and foremost, ASIO is a Commonwealth bureaucracy. Secondary, it is an intelligence agency. So the object for the bureaucracy is it must survive. If it doesn't survive, then it can't do its secondary job, catching spies and subversives. So um, when you read the pages, and this is before photocopying, 
you'll see down the bottom of the page where copies go to, and there can be 16 or 20 files that it could go to. So you might have communist influence in 3CR. So the file will go on to Annie's file, 3CR's file, the Communist Party's file, my file, because I'm talking to you on the phone, uh, and half a dozen others. And each one of those had to be typed either on carbon paper or retyped. So the, the, the amount of paperwork, and the, I'd love to have actually talked to one of the typists because it must have been a large room full of people churning out the, the paper. And ultimately, ASIO didn't ever catch and charge a single subversive in its history, and it caught one spy. Tell us about the uh, four people that you concentrate in your uh, four parts. I must say, we, had a, there's a, we have a list of about 40 people out of the 2,000 who we thought could be of interest on, on telly. We wanted to choose people who would be representative from the period when ASIO began in you know, 1949 through to when you can't get the files anymore, which was 1982 or three. So we wanted to be able to cover that period. We wanted to be able to cover communists who were obviously the main target for ASIO and uh, non-communists and we wanted to be able to cover Melbourne and Sydney so that the series will be screened on SBS later this year and we wanted to make sure that there was a, a, a sense of national coverage to the thing. However, the number of people who refused to be party to it was quite extraordinary. Of the four people, they weren't all first choices. We came to realise that whilst a political science student at La Trobe University in 1970 might give the finger to ASIO, now running a large superannuation fund or being a senior bureaucrat, they did not want this past brought up. And as one said to me, you know, the, these allegations, entirely untrue, that I know nothing about, will be all over the front page of The Age the day after this goes to air. And my rebuttal will be, you know, one column inch on the inside of page two. So strangely enough, the files in many ways had more power <laughs> 30 years later than they did on the day. The university academics are a lot more protected than people running superannuation funds or uh, senior bureaucrats. So the four people that we've got are all people who were in a position where their lives couldn't be damaged any further, or it's an advantage to their careers and their kudos. So um, Frank Hardy's dead, and his file is presented by his son, Alan, who had never seen his father's file before, and his granddaughter, Marie Hardy. Gary Foley and Michael Hyde present their own files, and uh, the fourth episode is, is uh, Roger Millis, who is a uh, writer whose father was a secret member of the Communist Party and a member of the ALP 
in the late 1940s and his son became a member of the Communist Party. That one is one that covers two generations of people as ASIO tracks this family over 50 years and make sure they don't get jobs, make sure they're sacked, make sure... So it, it, that one's a, a fascinating one. Gary's one is, is an interesting one because he is not a, a card-carrying member of any Communist Party, but land rights in itself was regarded as a front for communism. And in the early 1970s, until the Whitlam government came, came to power, um, the only people who supported land rights were the Communist Party. That's a fascinating one of, of subjects that can be swept into the moor of ASIO because they were supported by the Communist Party, such as you know, many social justice themes, uh, equality for women, equal pay, um, uh, land rights. There were any number of, of subjects, even, you know, quotas for Australian television they regarded as a communist front because the Communist Party supported it. And I've got extraordinary footage of, of um, actors well-known actors protesting in Canberra, why do we have to have so much American television? Why can't we have more Australian TV? And the Director General of ASIO contacts the Prime Minister saying typical communist stuff, wanting Australian stories on Australian television. So you can see how the, the in an Orwellian way, <laughs> everything you do proves that you're a communist, you know. Now, Michael Hyde is particularly interesting because he was a uh, contemporary of Abbott and Costello at uh, Monash University during the uh, yep. heated years of uh, Vietnam moratorium. That's a, a really fascinating story, Michael Hyde's one, because it's, it's the Australian chapter of the Cultural Revolution that was going on worldwide in 1968, from Paris to Watts, uh, right through America. And the, the group of, you know... Albert Langer and Humphrey McQueen and Dave Nadel and Michael Hyde and Kerry Miller and a number of others at Monash were in many ways the leading revolutionaries in Australia and without doubt were calling for the overthrow of the state by violence. There's no doubt about that. And as such were a legitimate target for ASIO, you know. So um, however... Uh, what ASIO failed to inject into the system was, whilst they may have been a legitimate target, it wouldn't take all that long to realise that a number of their targets had little or no capacity to carry out the uh, objects they were espousing. And therein lies the politicisation of ASIO and the use of their intelligence to create a wave of fear in the electorate that would continue to support conservative governments so the michael hyde's one is very much it's a i love them all like my children but that one's got one because there's you know i was at a number of those demos in melbourne at commercial road and we've got extraordinary footage shot by asio from the chevron hotel directly opposite the u.s consulate and it was a period of a of a generation coming to maturity um, and questioning all the underlying uh, building blocks of the generation before. And it was also a generation going to university for the first time, the, the sons and daughters of the first wave of migrants. So interestingly enough, in Sydney and Melbourne and Adelaide, it was the new universities where 
people who were being tertiary educated for the first time in their family were the most radical universities, you know, Monash and La Trobe. Um, Sydney was Macquarie and University of New South Wales. Adelaide was Flinders. The Monash and La Trobe crew, there was no doubt, they were out there going for it. And a couple of them believed, and I think they've, they've said to us, that, you know, the, the, they thought there was the, the, a revolutionary tide was happening. When the Whitlam government came in and pulled us out of Vietnam and conscription was pulled away, that then tended to pull the rug out of from underneath the combining elements that, that drew so many people to them. In 1967, in July the 4th, outside the US consulate in Commercial Road, there was probably 100 people protesting the Vietnam War. Four years later, there's 150,000 people in the streets of Melbourne in a city that had 2 million people in it. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite an extraordinary feat. The Monash crew were right at the forefront. And whilst many people did not agree with the radicalism that they espoused, what that radicalism did do was pull a big middle-of-the-road crew to the left a bit. And that's what changed things deeply, you know. And I think, as Michael Hyde says in the episode, you know, it always starts small, and whatever happens, don't give up. I know it sounds naive, but um, what uh, does this show about the fragility of Australian democracy and who was ASIO working for in the sense that uh, it's not just governments, but uh, all these people were actually expressing dissent, as it were? Well, the, the interesting thing... Uh, I think it, it shows the, the potential for democracy to be challenged in a major way. And when you read enough of these files, you see the enormous impact that ASIO had on academic advancement, cultural change. In many, they, I don't know, it's a bit extreme, but they, they, they held Australia back in the 50s. And it's, it's easy to do in a country as small as Australia, the population is small. They had enormous sway and they, by the mid to late 60s, they were in bed with the Liberal Party where troublesome people in electorates or troublesome opposition members, people would be asking ASIO for uh, a check on a file on them. And occasionally, you know, the files or sections of files were delivered and were then read into Hansard to smear that person. Those operations, in fact, were called spoiling operations where bits of people's files were fed to tame uh, MPs and probably more importantly to tame owners of newspapers, Consolidated Press in particular, the uh, Melbourne Herald, a, a number of occasions where they're just printing the most outrageous uh, slurs against people. So the dilemma is how do you oversee an organisation which by its very nature must be secret in an open democracy? And if you accept, and many people that I've spoken to who are persons of interest do accept that we should have an intelligence agency on the basis that there are people out there who would do us ill. But how do you oversee an organisation like that? And it's a, it's a very difficult question because I think that, once again, the nexus between politicians and intelligence agencies, the politicians' fear sells, fear gets votes. If you can provide a target for fear as a bureaucracy, you get a bigger budget, more staff and more power. So they scratch each other's backs and, you know, I don't think either of them uh, should be dealt with in any other way than healthy scepticism, you know. So ASIO's 
budget has gone up uh, four times and their staff has gone up eight times since uh, the attack on 9-11 in the United States. And as one ASIO officer said to us, the dilemma you have when you have a massive expansion like this is that the bulk of the workforce are inexperienced and when they're paying lots and lots of money, politicians want heads on pikes outside the city gates. The concern I have is the, the powers they currently have and in many ways the degree of competence. Uh, it's, a, it's a tricky situation and I think our series is sort of the, the antecedent of the, the current WikiLeaks and the, you know, the, the bloke in the Moscow airport and private Manning um, where you know I've got, I've got uh, files where the Director General of ASIO is reporting to the Prime Minister that there are about 3,000 communists in Australia. 2,000 in the Communist Party of Australia, 600 Maoists, 200 Trotskyists and 100, you know, ferals who all hate each other. And in fact, they hate each other so much, they hate each other more than they hate the, 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 the capitalists. So they didn't have enough capacity between the 3,000 warring communists to take over the MCG, let alone the state of Australia. And yet two weeks later on the front page of the tabloids, there's the Prime Minister flogging the, the potential for communist influence to take over Australia. And he knows perfectly well, having read the memo that I've read from his own Director General, that there's not enough communists around the traps to take over a footy ground, you know. So uh, therein is a, a, a very nice... Um, a spotlight thrown onto the duplicity uh, of politicians wanting to stay in power and using the information supplied by bureaucrats who want bigger budgets and bigger HQs, which ASIO have succeeded in doing. That was Hayden Keenan. And the film series that he's talking about is uh, Persons of Interest, the ASIO Files. Uh, very interesting stuff. Time changes, but uh, nothing changes that much, <laughs> it would appear. Uh, uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. Just to remind you that tomorrow is a big rally at uh, the State Library in Victoria, 12 o'clock, Black Lives Matter, 12 o'clock at the State Library Steps. That's me signing off. We might just go out with uh, basics. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.